Welcome to the New Beginning Fellowship Church Sermon Podcast. We are glad you are listening to the teaching of the Word of the Lord. We pray that this message encourages you and builds your faith. We also pray that this message is only supplemental to your spiritual growth instead of being a replacement for daily personal Bible study, the pastor you should be submitted to, or the church God would have you to be an active member of. If you live within driving distance of Brobridge, Louisiana, we hope that you would come to visit us during one of our services on Sunday morning or Wednesday night. Service times, ministry information, and giving options are all located on our website at newbeginningfc.com or on our Facebook page at New Beginning Fellowship Church. May the Lord bless you and keep you and make His face to shine upon you. Let us go to the Word of the Lord. The book of Galatians, chapter 3. The book of Galatians, chapter 3. We're continuing our study through the book of Galatians this morning in our series that we are calling All One by the one. Amen. That's the summary message of the Apostle Paul to the churches of the region of Galatia, that they are all one, and that is our text this morning, is Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, where it says, you are all one in Christ Jesus. And our study through this book is that you are all one by the one, the one gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? That by our faith alone in Jesus and the accomplishment of the cross, that we are united together as one people by faith. That this is our binding unity. Amen? This is what binds us together. This is what brings us together. There are so many things that could divide us so many things that could separate us, so many things that could break apart the bonds of our union. But Christ and the blood, Christ and the cross binds us in love. Amen? And so we're going to continue that this morning. As we look at this passage, this is one of the most foundational passages of the book to help us understand the context I will remind you a little bit of the context this morning that Paul is writing to the churches in the region of Galatia. Remember, not the tribal area of northern Galatia, but the region, the Roman province of Galatia that encompassed uh, Lystra and um, these different places uh, that are there. My mind is, uh, is slipping me, but this southern region with all of these places that Paul went on his first missionary journey And behind him came these Judaizers, these Jews who came behind him and said, it's good that you accepted Jesus, but if you really want to be a part of the Abrahamic family, then you have to be circumcised. You have to keep a certain amount of Mosaic laws. You have to do these things or you're not really justified. You're not really a part of the covenant community. And Paul is pushing back on that. And he's saying that the law is not what unites us, but the Messiah and that Jesus has fulfilled and satisfied the law of God. 
And he speaks of the law in a way that some in the American Christian church have taken some of Paul's language, some of his ideas, and we've turned it into a bad thing, a negative thing, and we've made the law into something that neither Moses nor Jesus nor Paul would recognize in an effort to try and lead people from law to grace. And so this morning we're going to look at one of the main texts that has been twisted to make the law look bad, and we're going to see how the law was absolutely beautiful and necessary to lead us to Christ, that we are not under the law, but let's not make the law look like something that it's not. Amen? We'll see that the law was indispensable, that it was absolutely necessary, that it was needed to bring us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Hallelujah. The book of Galatians chapter 3, verse 23 through 29. And I want to speak to you this morning. My message to you is all sons, all one. All sons, all one. Let's read this morning. The apostle Paul says, now before faith came, we were held captive or kept under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian or schoolmaster until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith or the faith has come, We are no longer under a guardian or a schoolmaster. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Read that statement again, verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all children or sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And so this morning, our study is this, that we are all sons, and you'll notice some of your translations have all children, and that's not a bad translation, but there is an emphasis upon the idea of all sons that is within the context that will bring us to a more full understanding of all that he implies here in the context, that you are all sons in verse 26. And then that we are all one in Christ Jesus. Can we pray this morning and ask the Lord for the help of the Spirit of God? Amen. Amen. Lord, we ask you that you would come. We ask that you would strengthen our heart and our mind. That we might grab hold of the truth of God. Lord, your disciples said to you things like, this is a hard saying. Who can bear it? And Lord, we say to you that our hearts feel so unable to bear the truths that you would give us, but how you would strengthen us, how you would equip us, 
how you would give us faith in the power of God. Lord, that your word promises that you would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in Christ Jesus, that you would give us the ability to understand the secret counsels of the heart of God, to move us beyond carnal wisdom and to understand the things of God and the purposes of God that are consumed in the person of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord. We honor you. We magnify you in Jesus' mighty name. Amen and amen. All sons, all one. He says, verse 23, now before faith came, before faith came, we need to dispel a possible misunderstanding of this statement. When he says before faith came, he is not saying that before Jesus Christ came and died for our sins that all of the saints of God under the Old Testament didn't have faith. Obviously that's not true. Read Rome, Hebrews chapter 11 and you will see the hall of faith. Amen. Those who believed God under the Old Covenant. The idea is not that they didn't have faith, but they, they didn't have the specific revealed faith of Jesus Christ. And so the subject here is not faith general, it is faith faith-specific, faith in Christ. And so they had faith in God, faith in his covenant, and faith in his promises, but there was a limited faith. And so their faith was obscure and vague and ambiguous. They knew that, that the seed of the woman was going to crush the head of the serpent. They knew that the uh, descendant of David would sit upon his throne and rule forever. They knew that the suffering servant would come and die in the place of the sinners of the people of God, but they didn't quite understand all that he was. And so their faith was a faith in prophetic promises, but not in revelation. They didn't understand all of that yet. And so he says, before faith, the faith, the revealed faith of Jesus Christ came, we were held captive under the law. He says, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Now you'll notice that this language is stronger in the ESV than it is in the King James or the New King James or other translations where the King James would say, but before faith came, we were kept, not that we were captive under the law, and instead of imprisoned, uh, it says shut up. But these are strong words. This is strong language to describe a captivity. When it says that we were kept under the law, one of the definitions of this is to guard or protect by a military guard, either to prevent hostile invasion or to keep the inhabitants of a besieged city from flight. Right, And so the idea is you were restrained in this place. Now don't take from this that it is all negative. It is both positive in a grace from God and negative in a judgment from God. What do I mean? How can it be both positive and negative? It is first negative in the sense that 
as we described in the verses before, the reason that the law came was because of transgressions. Amen? That the promise was made to Abraham and to his descendants by faith, not by works, but God's people were not walking in faith. They weren't trusting the Lord. They were transgressing the promises of God. They were sinning, and God instituted the law as a system of consequences that would help keep them in line until Jesus could come. Amen? And so they didn't have the benefit, the total benefit of justification by faith. It's described that the sacrifices under the old covenant temporarily covered their sins, but it didn't wash it away. Amen? So the record continued to grow. So in the negative sense, the law was keeping them in that you are in covenant, you're in relationship with God. God is giving you benefits of salvation, benefits of covenant, benefits of walking with God, even though you're guilty. And so I'm continuing to give you goodness, continuing to give you mercy, but your record of guilt is continuing to grow and grow and grow. And that's the point of one of the statements in the book of Hebrews is that the law, the sacrifices under the law, made a reminder of sin year after year. Amen? And so was the Passover lamb a joyous thing or a grievous thing? It was both. Because first it told you, you need this sacrifice for your sins because you're guilty. Amen? Well, who's guilty? It's for everybody. You all need it because between last year and this year, you have done things that would merit the wrath of God to destroy you and to push you out of all the covenant blessings and promises of the Lord, and you ought to be cut off and destroyed. And so first, it is a reminder of guilt. And then it is the Lord saying, but I will have mercy upon you. Do you remember our illustration from a few weeks ago where we described it in this way? Imagine that I say to you, I've got a house. Now I don't, so don't come after me after and ask it about this. But imagine I would tell you that I have a house, and this house is a 10-bedroom house, four bathrooms. It's on 20 acres, beautiful land. There's a river running through it, crystal clear water. There's a tennis court. It's beautiful. It's amazing. There are all of these wonderful things that you get to experience the benefit of, and I say, I want to give all of this to you. And you go, that's wonderful. And I say, all you have to do is pay me $5,000 a month. Well, what's the point of that? I can't afford that, right? And so the promises under the law were blessing and cursing. Curses if you disobeyed the law and promises of blessing if you obeyed the law. The The problem is that no one kept up their end of the bargain. And so God made the sacrifices of a, as a way to push off the debt and to say, your debt is growing. I'm going to remind you of your debt. It's temporarily covered, not gone, not removed, not completely taken out of the way, but I'm going to give you an extension and say, okay, you get to keep living in the house. You get to keep eating the food. You get to keep having my blessing, but the record of debt is continuing to grow month after month, month after month, month after month. That was the relationship they had with God under the law. They got to experience the blessing of the Lord. They got to experience the presence of the Lord, the promises of the Lord, the word of God was given to them, the covenants were given to them. They experienced so much of God's favor, God's power, God's blessing, but they were continually reminded, your debt is growing. Amen? And so he says, you're kept in that I'm not kicking you out, but you're also kept because you got a bill. 
Amen? Right? I'm not letting you leave. I'm not letting you get away. You owe me money. And so I will keep you in that you get to stay in the house and I'll keep you because you owe something. And so you are kept and you are imprisoned. Right? So God's mercy is keeping you here and God's judgment is keeping you here because though God was gracious under the old covenant, the bill still had to be paid. Amen? And so Jesus came and kept every demand, every expectation, and paid the bill on your behalf, suffering under the wrath of the curse of the law, becoming a curse for you. Amen? Becoming a cursed object. Perfectly pleasing the Father, never being a sinner, completely righteous before the Lord, but the Lord punishing him in your place. And so he says, the law was this institution, this system that would keep you and imprison you until the faith would come. Amen? And so he says, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed, apocalypse. This is the revealing, the the unfolding, the uncovering of the full promise of what God wanted to give his people. And so he says that this was a temporary institution. Now you look at that and you go, well, how can it be temporary? Because if you read the law, it says that it will be forever and ever and ever and ever. It will never end. Because Jesus didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. Amen? Amen. Jesus didn't leave anything undone. Amen? Look at the book of Acts and all the places where, remember where Jesus said, I did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. And then he condemned those who would lessen any requirement of the law. He he said, it's not a good thing. Don't go to the law and lessen its commands and lessen its restrictions. Don't go to it and minimize its restrictions. Emphasize it. Make it large. Magnify all of the truth of the law of God. When Jesus said that he came to fulfill it, go read the book of Acts in every sermon where it talks about Jesus fulfilling the law and it is always an accomplishment. He made it full. He did everything that was expected, everything that was demanded. Jesus kept every expectation of the law on your behalf. Amen? So it's not passing away as in God saying it doesn't matter anymore. It's passing away as an institution because Jesus has fulfilled it and kept it forever. Amen? And so he says, verse 24, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came. What does this mean that he was our guardian or schoolmaster? Literally the word is pedagogy, pedagogue. There's several different versions of the word in the Greek, and I don't know them well enough, but I'll say it with enough confidence that you'll believe me, pedagogue, or pedagogy, right? That's the secret to pronouncing Greek words. Say it with enough authority, and people will believe you because they don't know either, right? So if you know, you can come correct me after service. Just don't tell anybody else, as long as I got the definition right, amen? And so this word pedagogue, literally pedo meaning a child and gog meaning a leader, ego, a leader, someone who leads. And so it's a leader of a child. And one of the ways that this term began to be used eventually was that it was someone who was a teacher, someone who was an instructor. But that was a later use of the word. The use of the word in the time of Paul, in the time of the New Testament was this, that 
the wealthier people in the society of Greek and Rome would hire a slave. If they owned a slave, they would have one that was more educated, more well understood, one that was familiar with business, and he would simply be responsible for this child from about the age of six to about the age of 13 to 16, depending on Greek or Roman or different parts of that Greco-Roman world. But the point was, he was not necessarily the one teaching that child arithmetic and language and all of the other things. He was more responsible to govern that child in relationship to his behavior, to his maturity, and to his experience and operation of family affairs, right? So if, if he's sent out to work in the field, this guy's going to go with him to help him work in the field. He's going to help him learn the family business. If he acts up, he's going to be the one to discipline him and correct him. And the point is that he's only responsible for this child until he reaches a certain age. And after that, his role, his responsibility is finished. And he's there to keep this child basically from getting into trouble trouble. In some cultures during that day, a child wasn't even allowed to leave their home without the presence of this leader, this guardian, this pedagogue. And so Paul says the law was our pedagogue. The law was our guardian. It was the one to keep us out of trouble. It was the one to lead us while we were immature and infant and and irresponsible and we didn't know what we were doing. But the point is that there's a set time for it to begin and a set time for it to end. That's the point. That there is a purpose, there is a function, and he says that the law was our guardian until Christ came. When Jesus came, he became the fulfillment of all that was necessary under the law. He accomplished everything that the law could not accomplish. He said, in order that we might be justified by faith. Justified. Again, the idea of justification. Can I I tell you, have you focused, have you noticed how much Paul is repeating himself about justification? Because the subject here is, if the whole letter is about being a part of the covenant community, being a part of the family of God. Are you part of Abraham's family? Are you in the covenant? Are you in relationship with God? Do, are the promises available to you? Are you in right relationship with the Lord? And over and over and over again, this is the point, justification is the right of entrance into covenant community. Amen? that it is nothing that you can do. Can I tell you, we've lost the emphasis of the need of covenant community. I tell you, I'm, I'm grateful that we are not stuck in some of the dead religious traditions that emphasizes the church so much that you can't even see Jesus anymore, that it makes the church the stewards of grace and the dispensers of grace, and that you get grace through the church, through your confession, through your repentance, through your reciting of prayers, through your indulgences and all of these things. I'm grateful that we've de-emphasized away from those things, but we've also made church irrelevant. That, that knowing Jesus is just about me and him. And I don't need to be in the body. I don't need to be a part of the community. I'm not saved by going to church. I'm saved by a relationship with Jesus. Amen. But Jesus didn't save you to be alone. Jesus saved you to be with God's people. 
And if he saved you, you ought to be with God's people. You ought to be in fellowship with them. You ought to be worshiping with them. You ought to be in covenant community, committed to one another, serving one another, loving one another, putting up with one another, A to the men, somebody, dealing with one another. Jesus don't like everything about you either, but he ain't give up on you yet. Amen? You don't think there are things that happen in your daily life where the Lord just goes, Ugh. I just, oh, man, you just, ugh. Do you, think, do you not think that happens? Jesus did it with his disciples. He's like, I came to give you life and life more abundantly. And right after that, he's like, how long do I have to be with you guys? <laughs> I want to spend eternity with you. But if I have to spend five more seconds with you now, I might call down fire from heaven. I'm exaggerating. And yet he didn't give up on us. He didn't throw us away. We're not saved by going to church, but the saved go to church. Amen? Amen? And the point is that God saved us to be a part of a community because God in salvation is wanting to do something. He's wanting to accomplish something in the earth. He's got a kingdom to establish, not just individual people to be saved. Jesus loves you. Jesus saves you. Jesus forgives you. He calls you his child, but Jesus saved you for his glory, not your convenience. And for his glory, he calls you to be a part of a body to accomplish something in his name that you cannot do alone. Amen? If I cut my nose off, can it just keep going around smelling everything? I'm smelling everything to the glory of God. Praise God. Oh, the seasoning and gumbo and the smell of flowers. Isn't it all wonderful to the glory of God? My nose cannot function apart from my body. And for you to be who Jesus has called you to be, you must be in the body. And so justification is not entrance into the church or, or church, the church is not entrance into justification, but justification is entrance into the church. They're, they're so united here that he says, if you believed in Jesus, you're justified and by being justified, no longer a sinner, you're no longer part of that that excluded part of the world, you've been brought into a family, the church, the ecclesia, the called out ones. You've been called out together, singled out by God to meet God and be apart from the world and together to God with his people. You're part of the covenant community. And so he says, in order that we might be justified by faith. So the law brought me to Jesus. It kept me until I could get to Jesus or until Jesus would come to me. Amen? Until the Jew could find Jesus. And so he says in verse 25, verse 25, he says, but now that faith has come or the faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. We've, we've graduated We've moved beyond the guardian stage. We don't need that schoolmaster to teach us or escort us anymore. It got us to Jesus. Amen? It was meant to get me to Jesus. It was meant to keep us from being stupid until we got to Jesus. And it kept Israel in all of their sin, all of their disobedience, and all of the judgment that came. God kept them until Jesus came. Amen? How many times did the Lord say to Moses, you know what, I'm just going to start over. I'm just going to start over with you. I'm just going to kill everybody. I'm done with them. It's over. And then over and over in the prophets, the Lord promises judgment and judgment and judgment and judgment. 
And he says, but I'll leave a seed, I'll leave a remnant. Because even under the law, there was mercy. And so the law kept us until Christ came. But because Christ came, we are no longer under a guardian. That point is past. Amen? How silly would you look as a 30-year-old adult male, responsible, own house, own car, and you're asking a guardian, can I go to the store? Can we leave? You don't need the guardian. You've graduated. Amen? And that's the point when he says in verse 26, for in Christ Jesus, you are all children or sons of God through faith. And the point is, the idea of sons is that the child, while it was under a guardian, and he's going to explain this as he goes on in chapter 4, we're not going to get into it, but the point is that while that child was under that slave as his student or being guarded by him, the point was he had none of the rights and privileges of a son. Amen? He doesn't get the spoiled treatment. He didn't get to be the brat that's like, my dad owns the house and you're going to do what I say. No, the guardian got to treat him like a slave. You don't have any rights. You don't have any privileges. You're here to learn and grow up. You're a youngin, and youngins are here to be seen and not heard. And so the point is, you don't have any of those privileges that are available to you yet. And so he says, but we've graduated, and now we're sons. In the Roman culture, they actually had an adoption ceremony. When they had this guardian from 6 to 16, and finally they were responsible and they were considered to be an adult, the, the men, right, they, this is their blood child, and they would adopt them legally as their child. The point is, you don't get the privilege of being a son and all the inheritance and all the privileges and benefits that come with that until you are grown and responsible and you've graduated, right? So he's using this cultural example of the responsibility of children to submit to the leadership and the authority of their guardian to get to a point of graduation and able to have all the benefits of sonship. And he says, we're not under the guardian, we've been made sons, Amen. We are sons. We are fully mature and we get all the benefits of being the children of God. Now the word here is in the masculine. It is not the word, it is not the specific word for a son exclusively as in son and daughter, but it means children, but it's in the masculine form. And so the idea is this, that the word of God does talk about sons and daughters, but in the culture of that day, daughters didn't have the same privileges of inheritance that sons did. And so he says, all of you, even the girls in Christ, in your position are sons. All of you get the inheritance. Amen? You are all son. You have full privilege of full inheritance because Jesus is the son and you've got a shared identity with him and every benefit that's given to men is given to women. Every privilege of inheritance that is given to men is given to women. And you are all sons in the Lord. This is your inheritance. And I tell you, you can have no real understanding of what women suffered and the dishonor and the way that women were treated in the ancient world. You can't. Did you know that one of the formal prayers that most Jews would pray every day was this? That the men would pray, Lord, I thank you that I am not a Gentile and that I am not a woman. 
They have no benefits in that culture. They weren't even allowed to testify in a legal court. Their, their word wasn't considered reputable. And so he says, you are given the privilege of sons. This is your inheritance, that everything you get, you get. Amen? How does this happen? Through faith, by trusting Jesus. Verse 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. If you've been united to him in baptism, and and again, the language here is probably not necessarily actual physical immersion into water, but the way that Paul uses it so often elsewhere is baptism as identification, that you've been placed into him and raised up in a new identity, the identity of Christ. And if you've been united together, identified together with him, you have put on Christ. You have put on his identity, his privilege, his responsibilities, his blessings blessings, all of it is yours. And so he says in verse 28, so, well, we sort of skipped over that part, but here's the point. You're all sons. You're all sons. You all share equally in the inheritance of Christ Jesus. Amen? Isn't that wonderful? Every one of you. Rich, poor, old, young. Actually, we're getting, we're getting into our next statement. Let's do it. Verse 28, and that we are all one. And he says in verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That Jesus has broken down every socioeconomic, every ethnic, every national boundary that would come between us and all of those other identities that humanity in its fallen state might place a barrier between us or a separation between us. Jesus has come to break down those barriers and to make us all united together in Christ. Christ Jesus, so that we are all equally heirs in the Lord. So no more court of Gentiles, no more court of women, no more barriers to the presence of the Lord, to the holy of holies. You have become the temple of the living God. Amen? You are one in Christ Jesus. You share an identity with the Lord, and all of his privilege is your privilege. You're one. Can I tell you, this is so necessary today because even though we might not have some of the exact same cultural specific issues, we still have a million things that would try to separate us as the body of Christ. And some of it is significant, but a lot of it is so petty. It is so petty. It is so silly. It is so ignorant. It is so cheap. The fact that it would come between God's people, God's children, The siblings in the house of God must grieve the heart of the Lord to no end. And maybe we're here and we're going, well, I don't don't get the issue between Jew and Gentile. Maybe you don't even know anybody that's Jewish. And you're a Gentile and you're like, yeah, there's nothing between us. But what about the black and the white and the Hispanic and the Asian? Can I tell you, the answer of our culture to deal with the problems that we have is not to minimize those boundaries, but to emphasize them. If we want justice for black people 
in our country that feel oppressed, then the issue is to emphasize blackness, to put up a barrier, to separate and say, those white people don't care anything about you, and if you want justice in this world, you've got to emphasize your color. You've got to emphasize your identity. Emphasize the minority. Can I tell you, the real answer is the blood of Jesus. Because as far as we've come today, there are people that want to pretend like it's as, as bad as it's ever been with racial relations in our country. Can I tell you, the Pentecostal church in 1906 to 1909 saw real division, real separation. And a black man named William J. Seymour was so hungry for the presence of God that he went to a white church where it was reported that God was moving and was willing to sit outside on the porch because he wasn't even allowed in the house of God. In a white church, segregation so strong that he sat on the outside to hear the message that was given. And then God used that man to start a revival in California on Azusa Street in Los Angeles. And one of the members, white members of that church that was so upset that this man was the one leading this and that people of all races and ethnicities and colors were coming into this church and all of them worshiping, all of them praising together and this man was offended by this and hurt by this, the Spirit of God moved in his heart in such a wonderful way and he stood up before the church and repented and apologized for what happened. And this was the statement that began to be reported throughout the nation was that the color line was washed away under the blood. That it wasn't emphasizing whiteness or emphasizing blackness or emphasizing Hispanicness or Asianness or any of these other things. It was emphasizing Jesus Christ and letting the accomplishments of the cross destroy every barrier that comes between us. And we'll do it with politics. We'll do it with so many other areas. And rather than forgiving one another, being patient with one another, and loving one another, this is what I had one African-American brother tell me, and his whole hang-up was, was who you voted for. And he said, Basically, I don't consider you my brother if you voted for this person. And until you make your political stance right, we can't be united together. I said, brother, until we're united together, we'll never understand each other to be able to talk and to understand one another. We'll never be able to speak to one another. Are there differences? Are there things that we don't understand, that they don't understand, that we speak past one another, that we say things and we don't even know how they come across? You think that's going to be healed by just assenting to one side? Saying, well, we're a predominantly white church. This is what you need to think if you're going to come here. Or a predominantly black church, you got to go over there. You know how this is healed? By emphasizing our identity in Christ alone. By Christ alone. And if we do that, we'll love, we'll forgive, we'll heal, and we'll be able to understand one another. There is Jew nor Greek. There is slave nor free, no matter your social status, rich or poor. No manager and employee in the house of God. No, you wear these clothes and you wear those clothes and so you sit here and you sit there. James says if you do that, you've become evil judges and you judge according to the flesh. None of it 
The poor man ought not to despise the rich Christian for his wealth. And the wealthy Christian ought not to think that he's better than the poor Christian. That God has mercy on whom he wills. And sometimes God blesses you in spite of your unfaithfulness. In spite of, in spite of poor management. In spite of being ungodly at times. And sometimes the godliest people are poor. And we're not to care. Come to the house of God and love one another. And let the poor man glory in his poverty that Jesus has made him rich in faith. And let the wealthy man weep for his poverty because knowing that one day all of his money will end and he will die. And so that our joy is in the grace of God and not in our accomplishments. Amen? Say, Lord, praise God. Amen? Lord, I might have a 401k, and that's wonderful because good stewardship is important, but one day it's going to burn. And he says, and there is no male and female. No male and female. No privilege given to males above females. No privilege given to females above males. Can I tell you, first of all, before we define really what all this means, we need to to define what it doesn't mean. And I'll tell you that this is an awfully misused text. And it is full of bad theology, bad interpretation, and poor understanding of the historical, grammatical, and linguistic context of this passage. And basically what it's been used to do by progressive people, liberal people, and I don't mean that in a political sense, I mean it in a moral and scripturally minded sense, that they, they think this Everything progressive, everything that moves forward is good. If it gains ground, then it's good. Well, if you're at the edge of a cliff and you move forward, that's not good. Amen? You can get to a point where you're so progressive that you're transgressive. Amen? It's good to move forward, but it's not good to move forward beyond the boundary of Scripture. Amen? Don't move beyond the boundary of Scripture. Can I tell you this? I want to be as progressive as the Word of God leads me to be. Society needs to progress. Amen? The abolition of slavery was progression. Amen? It wasn't an absolute clear command in the Old or New Testament that slavery shouldn't exist. It was an outgrowth of the idea that every person is made in the Imago Dei. Every person is made in the likeness and the image of God. Therefore, I ought not to own you and you ought not to own me that there's a dignity that comes with liberty that should be enforced. And so we progress to that point. But then we became so infatuated with progression that all progression is good and all tradition is bad and all barriers and all ideas are unhealthy and not good and they're, un, they're restrictive and they're, they're not liberating and we all need to be free. And I tell you, there is a healthy structure for what the male and female roles are in the body of Christ. Amen? The point of this passage is that all privileges in Christ are given to men and women, but not all functions and not all roles. Amen? And we see this so much that those who are the super liberal, and I, I dare you, not, I ask you not to laugh at this, because if you think that churches around us within 20 miles of us are not a few years away from embracing some of these ideas, then you're, you're naive. I'm just sorry, you're naive. We can look at UC Berkeley in California at their campus and say, how silly are they? They're they're putting women's hygiene products in the men's restrooms because men can menstruate too. 
so progressive. There is no barrier between men and women. There is no gender. There is no, there is no binary. There is no one and two. It's, it's, it's all so neutral. The, the barriers are moved. Well, if there is, if, that, if it's taken that way, there is no male and there is no female, and truly there are no barriers, then what does it mean for a person to be transgendered? If there is no man and no woman, and those are only social constructs, and there is no true gender, then what does it mean for a person who has the biology of a woman that claims to be a man? How are they a man if there is no such thing as a man? It's a social construct. All of this has come because we've moved beyond the progressiveness of Scripture into the progressiveness of being worldly. Can I show you a place where the scripture is progressive? Can I show you? In the book of Numbers, the book of Numbers, chapter 27. This is where not the created order or the redemptive order, but the cultural order. See, this is what we need to make a distinction of. Everything in the Word of God is not prescriptive. There are some things in the Word of God that are descriptive. In other words, there were practices, thoughts, ideas that were present in the culture, and the Bible records them as a fact, but it is descriptive of what was taking place, not prescriptive, as this is what God intends to take place. And so we're going to see something that was taking place in the culture of that day that God said we need to move beyond that idea. In the book of Numbers 27, verse 1, it says, Then drew near the daughters of Zelophehad, the son of Hepher, son of Gilead, son of Makur, son of Manasseh, from the clans of Manasseh, the son of Joseph. The names of his daughters were Malah, Noah, Haglah, Milcah, and Tirzah. Verse 2, and they stood before Moses and before Eliezer the priest and before the chiefs and all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting saying, our father died in the wilderness. He was not among the company of those who gathered themselves against the Lord in the company of Korah, but died for his own sins and he had no sons. Why should the name of our father be taken away from his clan because he had no son? Give to us a possession among our father's brothers. And this is the point. These daughters of this man, Zelophehad, has come to Moses and said, look, you're uh, portioning out pieces of land to give to individual families, and those families are going to own that land, and it belongs to those families forever. Well, there's a problem. There's all these siblings, but none of them are men. And in the culture of that day, if there were no male descendants, then the women just didn't get an inheritance. That family lost that inheritance. And they're coming to Moses and saying, this isn't right. Our family lineage should not be cut off. Our father's name should not be cut off. Make a, a ruling for us. Make an amendment and allow us to have the possession of this land. And this is what it says in verse 5. Moses brought their case before the Lord. Can I tell you, Moses didn't know what to do. This is complicated. This is difficult. I don't have perfect judgment on this. I need to go hear from God. Verse 6. And the Lord said to Moses, the daughters of Zelophehad are right. 
You shall give them possession of an inheritance among their father's brothers and transfer the inheritance of their father to them. And you shall speak to the people of Israel saying, if a man dies and has no son, then you shall transfer his inheritance to his daughter. He said, these women are right. This is not in the culture of our day and it needs to be adjusted to make this more right. And so are there things in our culture that we would go, listen, I'm looking at the word of God, I'm evaluating things, I'm praying about things, and we should move in a certain direction that is more righteous and just according to the word of God. Yes. But is all progress good progress? No. And we have gone beyond the boundaries. The feminist movement, especially in its second and third waves, have minimized the importance of men. It has erased all of the defining roles of what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. And this is so prevalent that it is finding its way into the church. And it's destroying homes and families and churches. It's destroying homes because men don't even know how to be men anymore. They've been told, you're not the head of your home. You're not the man of your house. That is old school. It's bad tradition. It's male supremacy. It's exalting the man over the woman. It's treating the woman in a lower sense. And you need to humble yourself and everything is equal. There is no head. There is no leader. We're just two heads leading the same house. I'm going to tell you, I heard something a couple of years ago I, th- I really appreciate. It said anything with more than one head is a monster. God made men not to dominate women, not to rule over women, not to abuse women, not to take advantage of women, not to degrade women because God gives them honor. And the scripture commands the men, honor your wife. Amen? Honor your wife. Husbands, honor your wife. And don't be unkind to her so that your prayers aren't hindered. Somebody marries my daughter one day and treats her poorly and dishonors her. He's not going to come to me and say, hey, Dad, can I borrow some money? Bro, I might run you over with my truck. Give you money? You need to make things right with my daughter for you even think about coming and talk to me. Don't run over anybody with a truck. <laughs> Lord have mercy. That's a good way to make the news, isn't it? Local preacher... But we've removed those definitions. And husbands are afraid to step into their roles. Wives don't want to submit to their husbands. They're terrified to submit to their husbands. They don't even know what that looks like anymore. Used to, there were people who weren't doing it, but at least they had an example in a mother or an aunt or a cousin, or at least it was common within the culture. But we've revolted against it so much that we don't even know what that looks like anymore. And if you can find a home that looks like that, it's weird and strange. Something like that. Can I tell you there are gender distinctions. When it says that there is neither male nor female, this doesn't remove roles or functions. Amen? The husband is the head of the home. The wife is a helpmate. And the way that the devil got into humanity was getting the home out of order. You realize that? The first step of Satan in his subtlety was to usurp the authority of the man and go around him to the woman. 
And that serpent is doing it over and over and over again. When it says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, in connection to the command that women are not to teach in the house of God and they're not to have authority in leading the house of God because the woman was deceived and not the man, it's not because the woman is more gullible than the man. It's because the home is out of order and if it's not in order, it won't be led properly. God didn't give the command to the man and to the woman. God gave the command to the man and then made the woman and Adam told his wife. And this man sat there and watched Satan come in the back door, usurp his authority, lie to his wife, and he knew that he was lying to his wife and didn't stand up and say, honey, I love you and this thing is lying to you. And if the home is not in order, then the church won't be in order. It's not because women are more gullible. Any married man knows that's not true. Bless God for the wisdom of my wife. Amen? Read Proverbs about that honorable woman. Read Proverbs 31. This woman is industrious. She's making money. She's making products not only for her household but to sell. Her, it says that the heart of her husband trusts in her. She's a woman of discretion. This woman is going out with money, buying a field, selling fields, making money, making business deals, doing all of these things, but in relationship to her husband. Not ignorant, not uneducated, not stupid, but in her position and in her role. And in that, she's blessed. Amen? God gave women a mind too. Amen? Actually, a mind. There's a reason that Peter says, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Because we go, I can't understand. There is no understanding. There's no way to understand. It's crazy. It's out there. It's irrational. No, there is a logic. There is a wisdom. And it's good to have your wisdom and logic. And it's good to have her wisdom and logic. And when we marry them together, not as making enemies come together in peace, but marrying friends together in unity, there's a blessedness to that union. Amen? And we see that this is present also in the church. Can I tell you, we've seen so much in the last few decades in trying to move the church forward and giving the honor to women and the functionality that women ought to have in the house of God to use their gifts to the point that there is no distinctiveness in the roles that men are given in the house of God. Can I tell you, the word of God is full of this idea, especially the New Testament, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. There's no scripture that tells you that there are certain gifts for men and certain gifts for wisdom, but there are offices for men and there are offices for women. Amen? Can I tell you, one of the chief examples that people use to try and say that any woman can be in any role that any man can be is Deborah. But what did Deborah say? Has anyone talked to Deborah? Or do they just read Judges 4 one time and be like, anything you can do, I can do better. I can do anything better than you. That was probably a poor impersonation of a woman, wasn't it? Wasn't that awful? Anything you can do, I can do better. Right, that's the song. That was the movement of feminism is not to say that women are equal to men. Well, ta-da, scripture tells you that. Amen? They are made in the likeness and the image of God. Men are made in the likeness and image of God. We're equal. Surprise! What a revelation. 
No, feminism has knocked down the distinctive roles and the ministries that God would have them to do. This is what it says in in Judges chapter 4. So we saw how the law has made progressive moves in exalting women, giving women blessing and privileges, and making women's roles more distinct. We see Jesus doing this. Turn with me to Judges 4. We see Jesus doing this. Remember I told you that women's testimonies were not even admissible in court? And who did Jesus choose to be the first people to be witnesses to his resurrection. He says, you might not care for their testimony and their witness, but I do and I will honor them, I will exalt them. And Jesus didn't say this of any man, but he said it of a woman, that wherever this gospel is preached, this woman's story will be told because she came and anointed my feet and washed them with her tears. Jesus said that about a woman. So Jesus is exalting women, but he's not changing them to no longer women. Look at Judges chapter 4. People take this as an example of how things ought to be. This is not Israel operating in godly fashion. This is Israel operating in ungodly fashion. Judges chapter 4 verse 1. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So if Israel is in rampant sin, should we be taking all the patterns that they're using and doing as a good example, or should we say maybe some things are out of alignment? Listen to what it says in the Lord, verse 2, and the Lord sold them into hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Hegoyim. Listen to what it says in verse 4. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth was judging Israel at that time. Now, this is a position of authority and leadership, a role of authority for the house of Israel at the time. She was a prophetess. God had given her a gift, given her an operation to minister to the people of God. Was that office and that leadership genuine, real, authoritative? Yes, it was. But was this an office and was it an operation that she believed God wanted her to be in in the way that she was functioning? Listen what it says. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. Verse 6, she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and with his troops, and I will give him into your hand. This woman is sitting there and says this, send someone to come get this man and bring him here. And he comes and she says, the Lord already told you this. The Lord already told you, go, take these men and go and fight, and I'll deliver them into your hand. God gave you a command. God gave you a promise. God gave you an instruction. Man up and do it, son. You're going to see her frustration. You don't see the frustration yet, but you're going to see it in the moment. And she says this in verse 8, and Barak said to her, if, if, if you will go with me, I will go, but if you will not go with me, I will not go. Come be my lucky charm. Come make sure that things work out for me. You're a prophetess. God spoke to you. God told you. God told you to stand up. God told you to lead the people, and you are being a coward. 
In the word of God, what you will see is that when women are ruling, it is not an elevation of women, it is an indictment of men. That you are being a coward, you are being limp-wristed, and you are not walking in the authority that God has given you. You are being a child. And so you will be treated like a child in being a given a mother who will instruct you, come on, son, it's time to go do right. And she says, God told you to get up and move. He says, if, if you don't go with me, I'm not going. And so what does she say? Does she say, oh, what an opportunity for women to step into their role. What an opportunity for womanhood to be exalted and lifted up as this beautiful thing and be seen in all of its glory. She doesn't rejoice in this. She says in verse 9, and she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sarah into the hand of a woman. She just said, the Lord told you that God will give him into your hand. God will give him to you. You will conquer him, and the Lord will honor you. The Lord will exalt you, and the people will see you as the man of faith, you as the man of authority, you who finally stood up and took Israel out of its emasculated, fearful state and led it into victory. Well, I won't go unless you help me. Okay, I'll go because God is merciful to his people. Everything about the book of Judges is out of order. Every judge, every leader, nothing about it is operating the way that it should. All of them are flawed. The systems are flawed. It's terrible. And over and over and over again in the book of Judges is that every man did what was right in his own eyes. And she's saying, you're doing what's right in your own eyes. You're a coward, and this will not be to your glory. It will be to your shame. And God will sell the, the hand of, or sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. That you went and fought, but you didn't get your man. And so what happens, we see that in verse 18, and Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, turn aside, my Lord. So the battle is fighting, uh, they're losing. And so he takes off on the run, Sisera, the general of this army. And Jael, this woman, came out to meet Sisera and said to him, turn aside, my Lord. Turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent and covered him with a rug. And he said to her, please give me a little water to drink for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, stand at the opening of the tent and if any man comes and asks you, is anyone here? Say no. Verse 21, but Jael, the wife of Haber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. When a guy says, I want a biblical woman, some think that they mean quiet and submissive and ignorant. I want a woman that knows how to use a hammer. I want a woman that's not a coward that'll walk with me. Then she went softly to him and drove the tent peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while she, he was laying fast asleep from weariness. So he died, you think? <laughs> Deborah is not sitting there happy to be an illustration of the woman leading God's people. She's sitting there saying, you are making me shoulder a burden that isn't mine because you're a coward and you refuse to step up and be a man. 
She was happy to see men become who God called them to be. Amen? Sister Joanna, what was that word you gave a few weeks ago? God was calling the men to step up and lead in the house of God. Amen? A woman saying to men, we want to be led. We want you to operate in your role. The culture has whipped you and henpecked you and threatened you and said, don't you say you're the head of your home? Don't you stand up for what's right? Don't you stand up and say what you believe the Lord has led you? Don't you stand up and lead us in the word of God? And they're saying, we want to be led. And maybe we're not great at following. Guess what? You're not great at leading. But you're going to make mistakes, and we're willing to give you grace. We're willing to be patient with you. Will you stand up? Now, if you tell your man that, you better live up to it. Because nothing beats a man back into the dirt like trying and then getting beat over the head for it. But brother, I don't care. Put a helmet on. Move forward. Amen? Put a helmet on. Move forward. And so, first of all, what it doesn't mean is that there are no gender distinctive roles or functions to being a man or in the house of God. There are. But there are no privileges afforded to men that are not afforded to women. You are every much an heir with Christ as a man. Can you imagine being a woman in that day and your whole life knowing I have no inheritance, I have no rights, I have no authority, I have no autonomy, I am just subject to whatever this guy gets. And if he gets nothing, then I get nothing. And then you hear that in this gospel that you are made an heir with Christ and that you are given the status of a son, that every benefit that a son gets, you get. And I tell you, the house of God would not be the same without women. The home would not be the same without women. And I tell you, God created everything in all the universe and everything he looked at and he said, good. And they made that old boy lonely. Said it ain't good. He needs somebody else. He needs a helper fit for him. And can I tell you, my sister, the Lord has made you with a unique glory beyond all the stars and all the creation of heaven to compliment that man and to bless him and to help in a way to help him in a way that nothing else in the world can. And in redemption, you are given every privilege that he has. Amen. And then so what is the point? That you are all one in Christ Jesus. Back to our text. Back to our text. Galatians 3 and verse 28. There's none of these other distinctions, for you are all one. You are united together. You are united together. Can I tell you this, saints of God? I ask you with all of my heart to be as careful as you can about saying or doing anything that would break the bonds of love and commitment to one another in the house of God. Amen? Paul said this, if I have to never even eat meat again, I won't eat meat. If, if it offends you, if, and in the culture of that day, if you're a Jew and your conscience is weak and you go, I know we're not under the law, 
but we live in a pagan culture. We live in the region of Galatia or Corinth or wherever it is, and the only meat market that's available is owned by idol worshipers, and when they killed that animal, they offered it to an idol, and I just cannot eat that meat knowing that it was offered to an idol, and Paul's saying, I have all the liberty. I know that the idol is nothing. God made that cow, and it's good for food, and I'm to receive it with joy. But if it will make you struggle in your faith or it will create a rift between us where you don't know if we're in right relationship or you just don't know if it was right for me to do that, I will lay down that privilege to avoid ever offending you because I want the bonds of unity and love to be stronger in the house of God than I want all of my liberties. Will you pursue him in that? Will it be your chief goal, your chief priority to be one in the house of God? Verse 29, last verse, and we're done. Just a few seconds. And he says, if, and if you are Christ's, if you belong to him, if you are part of him, if you share in his identity, if you are part of his body, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, 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 according to promise. And every promise that's given to the Lord, to Christ, because that's what he said earlier in the chapter, that the promise was made to Abraham, and to his offspring, which is Christ. All those promises were made to Jesus. Jesus kept every demand and every expectation, and so all of those promises are yours in Christ Jesus. You are heirs together with him. And so can I tell you today, don't look at the word of God as some boring rule book that you have to investigate, try to understand so that you can know all the right things. This is the last will and testament of the Lord Jesus Christ telling you all of your blessings, all of your provisions, all of your promises, and you read it to discover who you are and all that he's given you. Amen? You are in Christ, and his promises are yours. Can we worship this morning? Lord, we thank you. We love you, Lord. We honor you. We magnify you because you are king. You are Lord. You are the sovereign. And Lord, without you, we are truly nothing. And we find our identity in you. And we ask you to unite us together in faith. Unite us in the bonds of love. Let us put aside every division, every distinction, which would remove us from one another or from you. And we ask you that you would do it all in Jesus' mighty name. Lord, we pray over the tithes and the offering, everything that's given for the household of God. Lord, you know the needs that we have. You see the vision that we have for the building, to move into a new building, to do the work of the Lord, to be faithful, to be a witness in this community. You know the financial responsibilities that we have. And I thank you that you have made your people givers, that you have made your people faithful, that you have made them sacrificial, and that you have shared with them the vision of the house of God, that we might build it together for the glory of Jesus. We thank you. We ask you to bless all of it that's given in faith. In Jesus' name, amen.